Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. This week, Lead Pastor Matt Dean continues our series on following Jesus in Mark chapter 11. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you again. Uh, I'll say at 7 o'clock this morning, this room was chilly. And, um, but it's warmed up, and you've warmed it up, and it really is great to be here. Um, we're continuing in our series, Following Jesus. If you're new today, I want to say especially welcome to you. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark and looking at uh, the life and ministry of Jesus, and every week asking the question, so what does it mean to follow Jesus? And this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11 and continuing to ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus invites people to follow him. What does it mean for us to follow him. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark 11. And as we open our, the word this morning, I want you to know that where this is happening is significant. It's a, it's a place on earth you can go in today, see exactly where this unfolded. And I, I stood in this place three years ago before COVID, and I was in awe of all that happened in this specific space. So in Mark 11, it says, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they were near the Mount of olives, and if you if you think about this place, it is it's one mile east of Jerusalem, and there's a valley in between this Mount of Olives, and on the other side of that valley is is Jerusalem. But this is where David ran to escape from Absalom. This is where Solomon grieved God by establishing these idols for his wives to worship. This is where Ezekiel in chapter eleven saw the glory of God, and this is where Jesus, the King of Kings, chose to enter into. Jerusalem for the last week of his life, which we'll be looking at in the weeks ahead. This is where he chose to enter in, where he would face his crucifixion. This is where Jesus would weep over the disobedience of Jerusalem. And this is where later on, after the cross and after the resurrection, this would be where Jesus' disciples would see the resurrected Christ ascend to heaven. This is an important place on earth. A lot in scripture happens in this place and you can stand there today where this happened. It says in Mark, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and Jesus sat on it. And many spread out their coats or their cloaks on the road, and others spread palm branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which literally means, Lord, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Save us now, they're saying. But they weren't making these words up. They weren't figuring out what what should we say in this moment. They were singing Psalm 118 over Jesus as he makes his way down this hill. This is what they were singing, Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter. Think about Jesus. He is the gate. He is how the righteous enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. Jesus is salvation. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. They're singing this over him. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That's what they were singing over him. That's the song they knew. And as he got on that donkey, this is what they began to sing. Save us now, Lord, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just to encourage you, there's so much being fulfilled in scripture in this scene. Zechariah 9, 9 says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When we talk about scripture being fulfilled, this is when we see the words of scripture being fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. Isaiah 9, this is happening for to us, A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Or Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called The Lord is our righteousness. Continue on, Ezekiel 34. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And we know that Jesus came from the line of David. We know that Jesus fulfilled these words. Micah 5, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. All this is unfolding before their eyes. They're singing, Lord, save us now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It says in Mark that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. 
And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Danny Aiken, in one of his commentaries, he makes this helpful comparison between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. First, Jesus came to die. He came on a little donkey. He came as a humble servant. He came in weakness. He came to save. He came in love. He came in deity veiled. He came with 12 disciples. He came to bring peace. He came with a crown of thorns and he came as a suffering servant. But the return of Christ is very, very different. Jesus will come to reign and he will come on a warrior horse and he will come as an exalted king and he will come in power and he will come to judge and he will come in truth and he will come as deity revealed and he will come with an army of angels and he will come and make war and he will receive a crown of royalty. He will come as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The most important decision you can make, the most important response you can make is what do you do with Jesus? Do you hail him as Lord? Do you dismiss him? One of the two. And while there's breath in your lungs, you can either acknowledge, Jesus, you are God. You can acknowledge it now or you can acknowledge it then. But if you are faced with that reality, it will be too late. And so in this life, while you have breath, confess and believe that Jesus is Lord. Be convinced that your sin stands before a holy God and because of that, you stand condemned before a holy God and you are unable, incapable of saving yourself. And be convinced that because of your own sin and shame, you need a savior. That savior's name is Jesus. Your good does not outweigh your bad. All your good deeds don't compare to the greatness of who God is. And the only way to be right with God is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Curiously, on the following day when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf are beginning to bloom, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, that's a curious story in the middle of this entry into Jerusalem, but it's prophetic of what will happen. And I'll come back to that in a moment. It says, and then they came to Jerusalem. So this is just a short walk, right? Down the valley, back up to Jerusalem. It says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus was very upset at what was happening in the outer court that was designated for the Gentiles. Now, because of the sacrificial system, there were animals to be bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple to make atonement for sin. But what was happening is in the outer court where the Gentiles were welcomed, by design, by architecture, they were welcomed. In practice, the Jews hated the Gentiles being there. And part of their hate was expressed in corruption when dealing with the sacrificial system. And what Jesus walked into was this chaotic commercial bazaar where people were extorting and overpricing these animals that were designed to be sacrificed in the system. 
And Jesus was angered over this. And he said, um, as it was written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus was confronting the reality that it was off, off its goal, off, off target completely. Now, during Passover, just to, just to kind of give you some context here, one Jewish historian said that over 255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple. So during Passover, which is the week this is happening in, in real time in, in this Bible account, the population of Jerusalem, right? This, the population was 10 times what it would normally be. Hundreds of thousands of people converging in, into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which was God's miraculous rescue of Israel out of Egypt. But this den of robbers is not what Jesus wanted. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And we know as scripture unfolds that Jesus accomplishes that and begins to accomplish that with his, um, at what happened at Pentecost with the nations beginning to hear the gospels being proclaimed in, in their language. John Piper makes this point that the true temple of God isn't geographical, national, based on race or ethnicity. The true temple of God isn't geographical, it isn't national, it isn't based on race or ethnicity. He goes on to say, and I quote over and over, Jesus shows that the people of God will no longer be identified in an ethnic way. The new people he is calling into existence is defined not by race or ethnicity or political ties, but by producing fruit of the kingdom. This will mean a new global family of believers in Christ from every ethnic group on the planet, and it will mean that those who love that vision will work toward local manifestations of that ethnic diversity. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism, locally and globally. Not color, but faith in Christ is the mark of the kingdom. That's the kingdom we belong to. We don't belong to anything lesser. We belong to the kingdom and faith in Christ is the mark of that. It says, as the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city, back down into the valley, back up to the other side. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, Look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And look at Jesus' response. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, this commentary goes on to say that Mark concludes the fig tree and temple story with lessons on faith, prayer, and forgiveness, the very things that people should have found through God's temple. And the fig tree events brackets and interprets this temple story. Jesus did not just cleanse the temple, he cursed it. It had failed and would be destroyed, and with no fruit, its use was at an end and God would remove it in less than a generation in the year 70 when the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And you think about that scenario and why Mark has included this withering fig tree in light of Jesus' disgust with 
the commercialized temple in the heart of Jerusalem. And we see how history unfolds. But Jesus also talks about this idea of whatever you uh, ask in my name, it will, be, it will be done. And I just think it's worth stating in this setting that, that this is where some of the prosperity gospel has taken its roots. The thought that if you, you can name it and claim it, it's automatically yours, but that's been divorced or separated from the larger context. And to name something and claim something in the name of Jesus, it needs to align with the kingdom purpose and glory of God. So the heartbeat of this, what Jesus is saying is if, if you pray the will of God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if you pray in that direction and believe it will be given to you. So for example, when we pray, God, would you save unbelieving people from around the world? He is doing that. He will do that. But if you say, I'm, God, would you give me a, a red Lamborghini? He's not gonna do that because that has nothing to do with the kingdom of Jesus. If you have a red Lamborghini, great. You probably should sell it and do something otherwise with it. But people have taken this and said, well, I'll just make this about me. But the kingdom of Jesus is about Jesus. And I want you to have confidence. You can pray in the name of Jesus. You can believe in the name of Jesus for the purpose and kingdom of Jesus, and it will be done. But if you make those prayers about me and mine, you've missed it. And in this name it and claim it that no Christian would get cancer, that no Christian would suffer, that no Christian would face hardship, that's just a lie. And that's not what Jesus is saying. You can pray the kingdom of God and believe with faith in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God will unfold because God is faithful. Man loves to take it and make it about him. And Jesus also talks about forgiveness. And he says, as you pray, Forgive. If there's someone that you have an offense against or you've been offended by, pray so that your father may also forgive your trespasses. I, I wanna focus in on these two things this morning, faith and forgiveness. Hebrews 11 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Let's be practical. What is it that you are hoping for? Like when you've completely messed up in sin, what is it that you hope for? You hope that his mercy stands the test of time and your failure. When you have completely, completely, completely done the thing you did not want to do, what are you hoping? Clearly not your consistency. So what are you hoping? You hope in a mercy that triumphs over sin. What are you hoping when you are at death's door or watching a loved one at death's door? You're hoping in that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. What are you hoping in when you are at the bottom of the barrel in your world? You're hoping that there's a great redeemer who can work all things for good. Faith is believing God. It's believing God, it's the conviction of things not seen, meaning I'm convinced, even though I don't know how this is gonna work out, I'm still convinced that you are good and that you are God. And Paul says it so concisely in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. In Galatians 2, Paul writes, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. On forgiveness, John says it this way. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or Colossians, Paul writes to the church, put on then God's God's chosen holy ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. This is easy to read, often very difficult to do. But the bottom line is following Jesus and unforgiveness are incongruent. They don't add up. And if you are unforgiving, you are not following Jesus. Now, I want to be sensitive to this moment. I can say that knowing that for all the times we, me and you, have blatantly sinned against him. I'm sure it hurts, and yet he forgives. And to forgive someone does not agree that what happened was right or good, any more than Jesus would agree with our sin and our stupid choices. He's not agreeing, great job, I'm glad you did. He's not agreeing with our behavior. He's agreeing to the covenant you're forgiven. And when you have to practice forgiveness because you're following Jesus, you're not agreeing that what happened was good or right or fair. You're not agreeing that you wish it had happened that way. You're not agreeing to any of that. You are saying with the strength of Jesus and the power of Jesus because of the grace of Jesus in the name of Jesus, I forgive you. You don't owe me. In my own strength, I can't do it. But in the strength of Jesus, I'm doing it. In the name of Jesus, I am forgiving you. And it's gonna take every ounce of his life in me to walk in that. But I forgive you. And you cannot follow Jesus and be unforgiving. You're like, well, why, why is that? I, that's what he said. But here's what I know practically. When we are faced with moments of obedience that bring us to the end of ourselves, in those moments, his strength is made perfect. And when you're at the end of you, there he is. And you can say in total honesty, Jesus, I, I don't know how to forgive, but I know that I must. Help me. I don't want to forgive, yet I want to walk in obedience with you. Help me. That's what it means to forgive. And at the end of this, it says they came again to Jerusalem, back to the valley, back up to Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders they came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. This was not the first interaction that Jesus has had with these Pharisees and scribes. And they discussed it with one another. Here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus says, answer me. So these guys gather together. What do you think? I don't know, Bob. What do you think? I don't know, Larry. What do you think? I they don't know what to do. And they come back to Jesus. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then do you not believe him? And we shall say from man, they were afraid of the people for they all held that John was really a prophet. So these guys come back to Jesus and they answered him with a lie. They answered him with a lie and they say to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus stops the lie, full stop. 
And he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He knows they're lying. And so he stops them. And in their own hardness of heart and not wanting to disappoint man and not wanting to give in that he really is God, they're like, we don't know. And he says, then I'm not gonna tell you. Again, Jesus is confronting the harsh reality of a hardened heart. How's your heart this morning? Are you coming to him with a lie? The truth is this, what it means to follow Jesus is that we, we give him our hearts. We not just, not just our minds, but we, we give him our hearts. And so I wanna just offer you four practical things this morning as we continue to ask this question and mind this for all it's worth. What does it mean to follow Jesus? We think about that scene going in where they're saying, Hosanna, God save us. Number one, it means that we say with our lips and with our lives, Hosanna, God save me. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol or praise your name. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to praise him. Like truly lift up your voice and praise him. You're like, well, I don't sing. Well, too bad because he's given you a voice. You're like, well, it's not a beautiful voice. It doesn't say beautiful. It says make a joyful noise to the Lord. So bring on the joy. Even if it's chaotic, we are to sing. One of my favorite things is my sweet daughter, Noelle, who's back here. She has Down syndrome. She is nonverbal. She loves to worship Jesus in a, in a whole different key with all different words. But she brings that joyful noise to the Lord every time. She was made for worship, and that's, that's what she does. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is to worship him. Number two, part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we, we labor to reach the nations. That all peoples would hear the gospel of Jesus. And so that's why we give, that's why we go, that's why we pray, that's why we send. And I just wanna say, he continues to call men and women to go. And the highest joy of your life might be that you say yes to that going. And as a church family, if you feel that burden on your heart, we would like to enter into a conversation with you to help you discern that calling, to help equip you for that calling. That's why we've started a seminary. That's why we are actively establishing partnerships in Central Asia right now so that for those that are called to go to the 1040 window to unreached people and unreached places, you have the means and a church family to get you there, to keep you there and to welcome you when you come back home. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that the unreached peoples of the world matter and they're right here. And you should know that there are families and individuals in our church that have welcomed international students over the last 30 days into homes over meals and beginning to establish these authentic, genuine relationships with the hope, unapologetically, that some would meet Jesus and follow him. Number three, it means following Jesus and unforgiveness are incongruent. I know that's difficult to hear. It's difficult to preach. But if you follow Jesus, you must forgive other people period. It's what he's done for you and it's what he's done for me. And with the strength he's given you in himself through the Holy Spirit, you can walk in forgiveness. And to not forgive means you're not following Jesus. And finally, it means that we walk by faith. We believe Jesus. And unlike the Pharisees and scribes that were challenging his authority, we welcome it. We welcome the rule and reign of Jesus 
in our life. And our whole life response to Jesus is anchored in this belief that he is good and that he is God. I will end with this, and I want to be sensitive because my dear wife is in the room. But um, her father, my father-in-law, passed away two Fridays ago, two Thursdays ago. And this week, uh, we celebrated his life, and I officiated his funeral, and I shared at that moment um, that one of the dearest moments in the last two weeks was praying in that back room together with him in his bed with our family, where we were able to speak blessing over him and speak words of courage over him as he spoke blessings over us. What a gift to hear from him as he heard from us. And with all of us crying, I said, we're gonna pray right now. And this is what it means to walk by faith. Ready? With the last breaths you have to join your family in prayer. And when we say, Jesus, we love you. And Jesus, we trust you. To hear him, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I trust you. We walk by faith. We die by faith. And then there is no more faith but the glorious reality of our resurrected King and God's glory forever. Faith is no longer required when you cross the other side. And that's the invitation. That's what it means to walk by faith is that with all of your life, your trust is in God because he's good. Don't buy into the lie that God is not good. He has only been good to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for resurrection life. I thank you for the truth that in all of our days, God, you know them all. Lord, that you are the giver of life and breath. And Father, we love you and we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to be the image of the invisible God that we could know you and be found in you. And so Father, this morning I pray for those that are struggling to forgive that they would consider how you have forgiven them. Lord, I pray for those struggling to find a song or a word to say, to sing to you, that you would give them words and give them songs. Father, I pray for those who are afraid to go to the nations or just go next door. God, that you would give courage to those feeble hearts. Father, I pray that you would call men and women, young and old alike, from this congregation and the church to go to those that have yet to hear. Father, I pray that we would walk by faith and not by sight. And we pray, God, that as we continue to walk with you in this life, God, that you would be greatly honored and glorified. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening this week. If you'd like to learn more about Grace Auburn Church, you can go online at graceauburn.church or you can download the Church Center app from the App Store or the Google Play Store on your mobile device.